Hello, and welcome back to Office Hours Career Pathways for PhDs. My name is Jasmine Goodman. I am a Howard University PhD, and I am your host. I am so excited because today I have a woman PhD who is also an entrepreneur, who is also a researcher, and I'm just excited for her to share her story. We met on LinkedIn, and she has just been just someone that I can follow and just connect with, and she's also given me some really great advice on how to build my business. So introducing Dr. Jessica Broom, she is the founder of Southpaw Insights, and she also earned her PhD in survey methodology from the University of Michigan. So, Dr. Broom, welcome. Hi, thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here with you, Dr. Goodman. This is so awesome. So now I just want to jump right in and I want to learn more about who you were before you started your doctoral program. So kind of tell me what you were up to before you enrolled. Um, Yeah, so I had a sort of a a winding journey um, to... To the PhD, I, you know, in undergrad, I was, I switched majors probably half a dozen times. I never had any intention of pursuing any higher ed um, or advanced degrees. I ended up as a sociology major. And when I finished, I was kind of like, okay, I'm done. Bye. And I um, went on, joined the Peace Corps. I was in the Peace Corps for two years teaching English. Um and I realized like halfway through, I was like, I don't want to be a teacher anymore. Like, especially not I was teaching middle school. Mm-hmm. So this is not for me. Um, and I, but I had sort of no other plan for what I was going to do. And then at the end of my Peace Corps service, every Peace Corps volunteer gets an interview from someone in like the government accountability office in Peace Corps Washington comes into country and sits down with you. And this woman asked me, and she interviewed me for like two hours, like, how was your health? How was your training? How was your work? You know, everything about like the Peace Corps experience. And then she's like, so what are you going to do when you go back to the States? And I was like, I want your job. Like you just fly around the world and talk to people and ask them questions. This looks so fun. Like, what is this? So I came back to the States and I looked for like any job that was had interview or survey. I was like, I'll just do this and figure it out. Mm-hmm. And I got a job um, in criminal justice research. I worked for a nonprofit called the Osborne Association that's kind of synonymous with criminal justice and prison reform in New York. And I did a lot of like on the ground research. I was in facilities in city jails and state prisons around the, the state. I was in um, interviewing people in drug court or alternative to incarceration, drug treatment facilities doing a lot of like on the ground field work interviewing. Um, and I did it for probably four or five years. And it was, it was hard, you know, every, at every step of the way with that field work, there's a lot of logistics. You, know, you wait two hours to get into a prison and then learn that you can't interview that day because there's a lockdown or, you know, a lot of the work that we did was funded by government contracts. So there were a lot of limitations about how you can do it and how you can talk to people. But after maybe four or five years of that, I I went back to school, surprise. I was like, oh, I want to really learn how to do this better. I'm going to go get um, a master's. I got a master's in applied social research. Okay. And I'm going to get out of this nonprofit world and start working in agencies. So I went to work in PR and communications agencies. I know it was a total 180. 
Um, so I worked at Edelman PR for a while and then at Ogilvy, which is a big shop, both of which, you know, night and day from the nonprofit experience, it was you know, much better resourced, mm-hmm. uh, much faster pace. I think I heard you talking to one of your earlier guests about sort of the slow pace of academia. Mm-hmm. And I think nonprofits can be like that. Like you might have two or three years to finish a project mm-hmm. where on the agency side, it was four weeks, like yeah. in and out, everything, you're moving quick, you know, you're better resourced, you have budgets, bigger budgets. And like I said, the, I, had, I had spent five years interviewing people who were incarcerated or in active addiction or on the run, like everything about it was hard. Right. And then on my, like my first day in agencies, they were like, can you interview a doctor? And I was like, yeah, I think I can do that. You know, So it was a very different life, um, different kind of research, but the same skills really transferred of being able to interview and being able to synthesize interviews into findings. Um, and then I, I was finishing my master's at night while I was in agencies and I was really dedicated to doing like methodologically sound and rigorous research with the constraints of a corporate environment, right? You really do only have four weeks to get this done. So how are we going to write good questions and get a sample and being conscious of our, our sample design? Um, so I stay there for a couple of years and I loved agency life. Like I loved the fast pace. I was into it. I did work, you know, I was able to bring in the, learnings from having a master's and knowing that the nuts and bolts of research to work that was really public facing. I worked on the Dove campaign for real beauty survey. I worked in the Edelman trust barometer for several years. I had amazing bosses and mentors. Um, it was fast paced. It was exciting. And like after nonprofits, you know, nonprofit means like, I'm not, if I work there, I'm not making a profit either. So to switch to the corporate world and be like, oh, this is a nice check was a good scene. Um, and again, I had no intention of ever going back to school. I was like, I did a master's, I'm done, that's it. Uh, but so I was you know, climbing the corporate ladder and I thought that was what I was going to do. And then one day I get something in the mail that was like, hey, you know, just so you know, your GRE scores are about to expire. If you ever want to like go back to school, you're going to have to take the GRE again. And I was, first I was like, well, forget this. I'm not going back to school ever. And then I was like, well, but if I ever did want to go back to school, like I'm not taking that GRE again. That was horrible. That's not for me. So like, let me just apply now so I can use these scores. I was like, I'm probably not going to get in anywhere. I don't care about the academic life. Um, And if I do get in, I'm not going to go because I love my career and I'm doing great, but let me just see what happens. So I applied to these three programs, three like pure survey methodology programs in the country. Um, and I got in. I was like, oh, that's interesting. That wasn't what I was expecting. But so I, I turned down to and I called University of Michigan just to like keep my options open. I was like, hey, I just got into your PhD program for the fall, but can I defer for a year just to like kick the can down the road? I'm making a decision. And they were like, that's a little unusual, but sure. And I think nobody knew what to make of me. They were like, okay, go ahead. So I like go back to my career and I'm like, you know, I could go to school in a year if I wanted to. I'm not, I'm not going to want to, but I have that option. And I was at a job that I really liked. 
and got sort of wooed away from it by a fast talking corporate recruiter and went into another job, another agency that was just not a good fit. It wasn't going great. I didn't like it. I was there for probably six months. And I was like, you know what? I can do this on my own. I'm going to go out by myself and just like hang up a shingle and get some clients and do my own thing. It was not well thought out really at all. I just sort of from one day to the next, no savings, no plan. I had a couple of clients, but this was in fall of 2008 where things were going down. The recession was upon us. Mm -hmm. And I very quickly realized, like, I can't make a living. I live live in New York City. Like, how am I going to pay my rent? This was such a bad idea. Um, And I called my old boss. I was like, can I come back to work? And she's like, sorry, you've been replaced. (laughs) I was like, I'm going to have to live with my parents, like in my 30s. What am I going to do? So I called the University of Michigan. I was like, hey, you remember me? I deferred in the spring. Um, Now it's like November. I was like, can I come in January? (laughs) They were like, what is wrong with you? But they were like, at the same time, they were like, actually, we were just talking about you because we got uh, a big NSF, National Science Foundation grant. It's starting in January. All the PhD students who came when they were supposed to in September are already on other projects. We don't have anyone to work on this big grant. So wow. if you come in January, you have to work on this project. And I was like, I'm there. So I moved from New York City to Ann Arbor, Michigan in January um and started started a PhD program at age like 32 mm-hmm. um so very different from people who, like go straight through right. and always know what they want to do mm-hmm. um but it it worked out yeah. here I am probably the longest how'd you get to your story you've ever heard no. so and see I love that because it again shows that people come into doctoral programs in very different life stages so there are some that will go straight through from undergrad we saw that with Dr. Savannah Young and then we also see with your story as well as Dr. Brandel Mills Cox how you work a little bit you figure out what you like and then you decide to go back to the PhD program so I want to dig deeper into so while you were in your program were you still focused on starting your own business or what was your career goal at that time? I mean, my career goal, my first year of PhD, of coursework was just survival. Like I, you know, I hadn't been scooping out of school for five years. I was like, how do I read this? These articles and like stats, it was so hard. Um, But I had a few clients. I had like one or two clients and I did really want to keep building that up because I was like, you know, the point of coming to school, it's going to sound bad, but like the point of coming to going into a PhD program wasn't to get a PhD. It was just to get funding so I could survive and pay my rent while I figured out how to run this business. You know, so I was sort of working on the two tracks of like, okay, I'm going to, from here, I might as well get the PhD, but like, I really want to build my business. Um, so there were semesters where I was like, I'm drowning. I'm taking stats too. like, I can't work for a client, but then there were other semesters or, you know, in the summer where I would take on a lot of work and do a lot of client work. Um, and you know, it sort of slowly built over the years while I was in coursework, which was tough. But then when I started writing my dissertation and had like all the freedom, like my days were my own kind of life. That's when my business really picked up. Um, 
I moved from Ann Arbor to downtown Detroit, which is like a 45 minutes or an hour away, which is just sort of a different life. Like I was just at home working. I could do whatever I wanted. No one was looking over my shoulder. And that was a great year. Like I pretty much, the year that I was working on my dissertation, I, I pretty much wrote my entire dissertation between like nine and 11 in the morning. And then I would go and take on client work and work in the afternoons and have meetings. And I would travel and go do focus groups and, it was kind of the, the perfect balance. Like the dissertation got done. My clients were happy. Everyone was happy. Um, and then when I graduated, I was able to sort of keep going with the business. And by that point, it had grown. Like I had enough clients where I was like, okay, I can survive without this um, grad student stipend. Well, I have to say I admire your discipline because the fact that you were able to write from 9 to 11, I probably spent 9 to 11 commiserating about writing and then maybe writing for 30 minutes to an hour <laughs> and then back to commiserating. So I think that it's important that you do have that structure. So what were some ways that while you were in school, you were building clients? How did you reach out to people? How did you get them to trust you? What were some things that helped you to kind of prove yourself in that space? It's a good question. Um, I would say then as, as now, like even now, but especially then all my clients were people who knew me. So it was word of mouth. There was people I had worked with before. Um, you know, I called every past boss I had had. I was like, Hey, I'm on my own. Can I do a project for you? And people I had known at those jobs who then went to other agencies or other organizations. So it was all just like a spider web of connect interconnected people who I had some personal connection to. I feel like it's that's much easier to get a client if someone already knows you and knows the kind of work you can do and knows how you work than to just reach out to a random person on LinkedIn, which I did also like, hi, I just, I'm a survey methodologist. Can I help you? And like occasionally people would bite on that, but the, the ROI was not great. Um, okay. So we have a segment called Nuts and Bolts where we talk about what are some of the specific things, well, specific things that you did to build business. You did mention how you reached out to your network. What are some things that you did to translate your very academic background into commercial research? experience or a language that a hiring manager could understand? Oh, that's such a good question. Um, so tools, nuts and bolts. I guess I would say in the corporate world, like having a PhD doesn't necessarily hurt, but it doesn't always help, right? Mm -hmm. I'm sure you've seen this too. Yeah. I think people hear, oh, PhD, and immediately they think, She's a nerd. She can't talk to people. She just likes to play with the data and be behind her computer all day. Um, she works slow. She's not conscious of deadlines. She's used to those academic three-year deadlines. Um, she probably thinks she's better than us. She's going to talk down to us. She's going to talk in a way we can't understand. So I think being able to emphasize not like, I have a PhD. I'm so smart. But the skills that I had developed in the PhD, so writing proposals that get funding, you know, that's a big thing. Like I wrote proposals for dissertation funding and got money from the government. That's right. Everyone likes to hear that. Mm -hmm. um, speaking at conferences, you know, I spoke at this conference and this conference where, you know, these were the attendees. They weren't necessarily people just like me, right. Explaining like I can present research findings to all different audiences. I have this experience. 
Um, I can, you know, I conducted original research in the form of a dissertation while juggling a committee with, you know, very different personalities, different agendas. So to be able to say to a hiring manager, like, I can incorporate feedback from different stakeholders, like, those are all skills that that make sense in a corporate environment, I think. I would also say um, the skill or the the power of self-motivation like, especially now that we're all remote, you know, yes. people, if I'm going to hire someone, I need to know that they can like get off the couch and right. do the work, right? right. So uh, being able to, to talk about that and be like, I was just on my own, no one watching over my shoulder. And I wrote this 160 page dissertation right. by myself. You want to read it? Like, I think people, I think, I think that went, went a long way. Now, you are in a position now where you are a hiring manager. So what are some ways that a PhD can stand out on paper to you so that you feel confident in hiring them for a project? Yeah, I think it's um, the, the number one thing I would tell someone with a PhD is like, don't emphasize like the title of your dissertation or who was on your committee. Like that doesn't mean much to me unless it happens to be like someone I know or something I know. But if like, if you're in psychology or you're in economics, like I don't know who these people are. I don't know even what your, the title of your dissertation means. Like tell me what you've, what you've done that I can grab onto. Like, what do you have to offer me? Um, Oh, you can come up with ideas on your own. You came up with this great idea for a dissertation, that's cool. You wrote this thing on your own. You navigated like the bureaucratic hassles of grad school. Like all of those, I think, are, are skills that I would want to see. And the, having a PhD or like I I know this content is almost secondary, right? And I think that's important too. You kind of you have to separate your research area from the skill sets that you develop while you're in your program. And so I would love to learn more about just the the breadth and the variety of projects that you've worked on at your company since you defended your dissertation and graduated. Oh, yeah. Wow. <laughs> um, <laughs> sure. So I will say that for the first like 10 years of having my company, the company was pretty much just me. Um, and I did a lot of freelance work for agencies or other research companies. And I lived kind of a a digital nomad life and I would move around every three or four months to a different city or a different country. So a lot of my work was at that time was quant surveys, quantitative surveys, um, stuff that I could kind of do from anywhere. I didn't have to show up and do a focus group in person in Cincinnati while I was in Argentina. Um, But since, 2016 when I came back to New York and then really 2019 when I rebranded the company and really started growing it. Some of our big clients have been um, a lot of consumer facing brands. So we do work in the retail space for Macy's, Chuck E. Cheese. Uh, I know, love Chuck E. Cheese, right? In the food space, we have General Mills, Bush's Beans, um, Emmy's Cookies. So a lot of Consumer stuff as well as employee work. We've done work for with a number of companies about their diversity, equity, and inclusion 
initiatives and talking to employees. We actually did one for a university, talking to faculty, staff, and students all about diversity and safety and how the university's diversity initiatives are being received and what they need to do to improve them. So I would say it's it's kind of all over the map. We do maybe 20% of our work is with doctors or professionals, um, so what we call B2B, business-to-business research, but probably 80% of it is just with regular people. You know, how's your job? What's in your refrigerator? Where do you like to shop? One piece of advice that you gave me when we first met, you told me to focus on report writing. And you said, and I did. So I signed up for reading training. Um, It was great. I've actually just pushed out a report for an automotive company. The client loved it. And that's one thing I have to credit you for, because when we first met, you were so, well, I'll say this to all the PhDs and future PhDs out there. There's such a welcoming community of people that if you just reach out, people will give you advice. They'll answer your questions. And Dr. Broom has been one of those people for me. So tell me about the how you have to kind of switch your brain from academic writing to corporate writing, because it's not the same thing at all. It's so true. It's not the same thing at all. And I'm really glad you took that advice to heart and have been working. I feel like it's, it's night and day. Like you can write a great dissertation and just be terrible at writing reports for um, corporate clients. I think, okay, the big differences are, I think in academic research, there's much more of a focus on how did you do it? Right? Like, you always have questions from reviewers that are like, well, tell us more about this. And how did you find these people? And who were they? And why did you ask that question like that? And why did you do this? In corporate, I feel like they don't care. They just want to know the result. Like, tell me what you have to tell me. You know, a 150-page report? I'm not reading that. I don't have time to read that. Right. Um, so I think that's the big difference is like cutting to the meat mm-hmm. and telling me like, what does it mean for me? What am I taking away from this? What does it mean to my customers? What does it mean for my business? I care about that a lot more than like, you know, you had 17% women and 40%. I don't care. Like, right. And I'm going to put in a graphic. I just saw it on LinkedIn and it talked about being able to tell a story with data. And so it was about, I want to say maybe global warming, but the first graph was like, you know, 18% of people are affected by this issue versus having a slide that says 800 million people are affected by this issue. So even understanding how to tell the story that's in your data is important because people will get bogged down in a whole bunch of charts and graphs and all of those other things. When sometimes just a strong one sentence statement can just really, you know, give the impact that you want or it'll have the impact that you want it to have. So with all of your experience, what's some advice that you would give to someone who is about to graduate and they're a bit nervous because, you know, things out in the job force, they're they're a little wonky right now. What's some advice that you would give as they find their own path with their doctorate and they want to go into maybe commercial research? Mm. Um, well, I mean going back to what you said about reporting, like one of the best pieces of advice I ever got, which is going to sound funny since I just said I was such a believer in methodological purity, but I had a boss who was like, 
Don't let the data get in the way of your story. It makes sense. It makes sense, right? Like if I have a story to tell, like 18% and the 42%, like that, that gets, that just mucks up the story. They're like this many millions of people. Like I had another client who said, I'll pay $50,000 for three bullet points. If they're the right three bullet points, like giving me the, the key finding and what it means is so much more important than like getting buried in the, in the weeds, which is not to say that I would tell people not to care about the quality of your data or the accuracy of your data or the way you present your data. You know, I might give you a two page report with a 50 slide appendix. Like we still have the data there, but we know that like the data in and of itself isn't, isn't everything. It's a big part of our job is to turn that data into a story that anyone who hasn't been steeped in the data for however many weeks could digest and, and use. Got it. Now, what are some organizations that you've joined or that you've observed to be helpful for people wanting to get into commercial research? Oh, um, QRCA, Qualitative Researchers Consultants Association, has been my favorite. Are you a member? I am. I love them so much. They're amazing. You know, it's a great it's a great group, I would say. Um super supportive, great camaraderie for young, young people. I feel like they, they have the young professionals grant. I've always been too old to get the young <laughs> professionals grant, but I highly recommend that to anyone who's 35 or under. It's a great opportunity. Um, they'll fund, I think, a, a conference and a year's yeah. membership in the association. Um, beyond that, there are tons of um, webinars and there's a quarterly, I think, magazine that comes out that has great stuff. And I also feel like I've never in the 10 years of being a QRCA member, I've never reached out to someone for help and had them be like, no, I don't want to help you. Like, it's a very help. I'm glad that's your, in your experience too. Yeah. 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 Um, another organization that I really like that is not research specific, but is if for women considering starting their own business. I'm a member and, and quite active in WeBank. It's mm-hmm. W-B-E-N-C. It's the Women's Business Enterprise National Council. And that is, you know, people, women business owners from all different fields and, you know, these product businesses and service businesses and manufacturing and all the things. So it's a much broader um, view than QRSA that's so narrow. But again, the I think sort of the ethos is like women helping women and how can I help you and how can I lift you up? So that organization has also been a huge help for me. I just remembered that that was a part of our conversation that we had when we first met. I was like, well, which certification should I get? You said, get all of them. You're going to need all of them. (laughs) I mean, again, they can't hurt. Did you get them all? I got the WeBank one. And so I have to start the others, but I definitely have WeBank and I also have the Ed Wasby. So those are, and they've been helpful too. I have reached out to a couple of people and they have a lot of great resources. I'm curious, have you done work with women in research or? Wire? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Were you a mentor also? I was not a mentor. I think the, the big thing I was involved with, with Wire was in... Uh, I had a couple of nominations or short been getting on the short list for the um, 
MRX Diversity Champion Award. And part of the work I did around that was a big study where I partnered with a, a qual, multicultural qual research agency called Zebra Strategies. I don't know if you know. Them. I've heard the name. I have heard They've the name. They've been around. <laughs> um, Deneen Rodney is founder of Zebra Strategies. They're also a certified women-owned business and a, a qual shop that focuses in multicultural. So in 2020, both of us in the spring of 2020, both Deneen from Zebra and myself were kind of freaking out because the whole world shut down. We didn't have any work and we had to keep our teams busy and keep paying them and keep doing work. So we came together and we're like, let's do a big project. Um, Southpaw will do the quant and Zebra Strategies will do the qual and Gazelle, who's one of our field partners, will provide the sample and we'll you know, do this whole study on how different groups are experiencing the pandemic and experiencing this summer of 2020 of sort of racial justice fallout, how people are experiencing it differently. You know, are white people saying this, white people are saying, oh, it's not a big deal. I have access to care if I need it. I can get treated for COVID. It's easy for me to avoid COVID. And then on the other hand, people of color are saying, I can't avoid COVID. I have to go to work. It's a real thing. I don't think I'm going to get the treatment. So we did a, a four-part speaker series for WIRE. It might still be on their website. And we had different guests each time talking about different chunks of our data. So we did one that was mostly about the health disparities. Mm. Um, another one that was more about lifestyle disparities or um, fear and safety and policing. We had different experts come in and join us on each one. So that has been my big piece of involvement with WIRE. I, don't, I haven't done much with them since, but it's only because there's only so many hours in the day and I can't be involved in every organization. But they are a great, great yeah. organization. And that actually brings me back to what Dr. Brandel Mills Cox shared in her interview is how she was able to take a research project that she owned from beginning to end. And she presented that and that helped her to build new business for her company. So that's something that if you want to, you know, put your flag in the ground and say, you know, I own this space, or I'm able to do this work, then running a project from end to end and sharing those results with other organizations on social media and in, in different publications, that seems to be a great way to show your research skill set, but also show that you can manage a project of that size too. A hundred percent. I feel like it, that's a great thing to do. Like if you, if you have the resources to do it, right? If you have the time, if you have the money, if you can get respondents, mm -hmm. I think something like that can be so powerful and can be packaged in a million different ways, right? You know, um, oh, I'm going to write a little article about this, or I'm going to do a podcast about this, or I'm going to get someone to interview me about this. One thing that's like constantly frustrating for me, I think, with client work is that once we do it, it's it's done. It's theirs. You know, it's it's not my intellectual property. I can't really talk about it. But so having something that you self fund and self orchestrate, that's all yours, is can be a really powerful tool. Now, with you having so much experience in commercial research, I did see on LinkedIn that you're you created a class or you're doing something with a survey class. Oh, yeah. you about your your yeah. academic. <laughs> I'm always on LinkedIn. You it's are. <laughs> I love it. So for 10 years since I graduated from Michigan, I've been going back there every summer 
I teach in the Summer Institute and Survey Research Techniques, which has been going on like since the 70s, I think. Oh, wow. um, and that was what one of my jobs that I had when I was in school was as like a TA for a professor for questionnaire design. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's kind of perfect for me as someone who did not want an academic career. Like I never really considered I'm going to be a professor. Like I don't, that was not for me. But this is like keeping, you know, I teach one class mm-hmm. and it's, it's gone. It's been everything from like an eight week, three credit class to now it's just like a two day um, online workshop, which it's been a great way to keep like keep one toe in or one foot, one toe in academia while not fully committing and yeah. to keep up with what's going on in the field. You know, I have to be up to date on developments in questionnaire design, um, in survey methodology as a whole. So like I still read a fair amount and listen to people and go to academic conferences so I can teach this class, but it's not it's a far cry from being a full-time academic like professor. Yeah. <laughs> and I also teach an online class. I have a, a self-paced online class, uh, one on Skillshare and one on Udemy. I can give you the, the links for your viewers. Yeah. That's like questionnaire design boot camp. It's like for someone who couldn't couldn't take a, cl- a full class at Michigan or couldn't hire South Pot Insights to write your questionnaire. Here's like the most important things you need to know just enough to, to be dangerous writing questionnaires. So no, that's awesome. And we'll be sure to include that in the episode description. So how can people reach out to you, learn more about you? Um, I know we want to hear all about Southpaw. So give us that information so that people can check you out there. Yes, of course. Um, I'm on LinkedIn, Jessica Broom and Southpaw Insights are both on LinkedIn. Southpawinsights.com is a great way to get in touch with me. Uh, yeah, I'm not really on Twitter very much anymore, so I won't say that. Twitter is scary. It's, everybody's it's thoughts and We're thinking about joining and getting on there, but right now it's just it's a lot. One thing I did want to mention about what I love about your website is that you all have case studies. So that way, for someone that wants to learn just kind of how all of this works, you can go through, read a case study, see you know what was the problem they were looking to address what was their approach and also what was the client impact or how did the client implement that? So that's something that we talk about being able to translate your experience from academia to commercial research is being able to speak that commercial research speak and a great way of doing it is by reading case studies. Such a good point. I think that's, we, I did that on purpose. Like I feel I probably have 60 case studies on that website at this point. So anyone who's like, mm, I might want to hire them. What have they done in this area? What have they done with this audience? Each one of those case studies is like maybe five sentences. Like they are really quick, punchy to the point. You can go right to results and see yeah. like, what did they do? What are they, what can they do for me? And I think that goes back to what I was saying before about like, Nobody cares that like I have a PhD and I wrote my dissertation on blah 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 blah. I don't care. Like, <laughs> I so I just explain what people want to hear. I love it. Well, I am so. This is. Been-